welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. I want to take some of the voices that are strident in terms of their approach to the Christian faith and, as I say, just try and bring some biblical shape to some of the things that they're saying. So, tonight, the challenge of atheism. Of course, the challenge of atheism is not a new one, um, although I have to say it's impacting the church, particularly in the West at least, with some new force. Um, The word atheist is an ancient word. It's derived from an ancient Greek word, and originally it referred to people who refused to believe in the gods of the Athenian establishment, the gods of the Greek Parthenon. Later, it was used to describe people who refused to believe the gods of the Roman establishment. Ironically, early Christians were called atheists because they refused to believe in the pantheon of of Roman gods. Now, over time, of course, the word atheism morphed, as words are wont to do, and it has come in our day to refer to people who have embraced a belief in the non-existence of God or gods of any kind. Now, when you're considering atheism, I need to mention another word that are, that's often used in connection with atheism, and it kind of goes along the same line, but it's the word agnostic. And uh, you, you may have heard of that. Atheism is a belief in the non-existence of God. Agnosticism is a step removed back from the dogmatic assertion of atheism. Now, agnostic beliefs come in two forms, hard-boiled and soft-boiled, if you like. Uh, The hard-boiled form says we cannot know whether God exists, full stop. The soft-boiled form says I do not know whether God exists. So we move from God does not exist to we cannot know God exists to the, the softer form of I do not know whether God exists. So atheism isn't new, as I said. There have always been atheists. However, for most of human history, atheism has not really managed to cause much of a ripple on the surface of man's religious orientation and quests. Things, however, began to change quite dramatically in the 18th century. That time in history is regarded by many historians as one of the most dynamic and exciting times of human history. It was a time of revolution. It was a time of enlightenment. A feeling of deep dissatisfaction and disillusionment had emerged uh, around and toward the institutional church of the time. The church seemed to be the enemy of progress. It was clearly corrupt, and it supported equally corrupt monarchies, and people began to get really dissatisfied. In the middle of that, we have a season in France that we now look back on and call the French Revolution, a 10-year period from 1789 to 1799. It was a pivotal watershed moment and signaled the beginning of what has often been titled the golden age of atheism. Now, we're not going to look at it that in any detail in terms of why it happened, you can pursue it if you like, but I suspect that some of you might have heard some of the names of famous atheists who emerged out of this period. 
Two of the better known ones would be a man by the name of Voltaire and another one by the name of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. These were two atheistic voices, very, very powerful atheistic voices that challenged uh, both the institutional church and, and Christianity in uh, in, in its doctrinal form. Fascinating, uh, Voltaire claimed that within a hundred years, uh, Christianity would be swept into existence and would have passed from history. The incredible divine irony is that 50 years after Voltaire had passed into history, the Geneva Bible Society purchased Voltaire's printing press to print Bibles and used his old house to store them in. This time, though, and these men sowed seeds that led to the development of other ideas and other people who took up the atheistic torch. Again, I'll just briefly mention some names that you may or may not have heard of. We won't deal with them in any, any detail, but a man by the name of Ludwig Fraubach. Um, his assertion was that man, God was man's invention, and you might have heard the term wish fulfillment. Well, the idea of wish fulfillment came from Fraubach. He, he claimed that God didn't create man, but man created God. We wished for transcendence, so we created a God to try and achieve that. Now, the interesting thing about wish fulfillment is it's some, something of a double-edged sword because one might just as easily suggest it's actually the atheists who wish that God didn't exist. Uh, and they wished him away. So wish fulfillment is an interesting concept. Another key man you will have heard of is Karl Marx. Uh, Karl Marx was from a Jewish family. He saw religion and the idea of God as famously the opiate of the people that drugged people into a pie-in-the-sky-when-you-die mentality and thinking that stopped them rising up and challenging and overthrowing the oppressive ruling classes of their season. Karl Marx, of course, was the father of, of communism. Another name I'm sure you've heard of was Sigmund Freud. He was an Austrian psychiatrist, also Jewish, who claimed, like Frauerbach, that religion was the universal obsessive neurosis of humanity. And he claimed that belief in God was an infantile delusion. Um, most of you will know, of course, of his famous claim that sex lay at the root of almost all forms of human behavior. I suspect that famous claim tells us more about his obsessional neuroses than yours and mine, but that's a personal opinion. Frederick Nietzsche was another man. He's famous for the phrase, God is dead. Actually, funny piece of graffiti on the New York subway said, God is dead, signed Nietzsche. Underneath, someone had put, Nietzsche is dead, signed God. Nietzsche was the father of a philosophy that we now know as nihilism. Nihilism uh, essentially claims that life is without meaning, it has no objective purpose, it has no intrinsic value or accepted morality. And if you want any of those things, you have to invent them yourself. So Nietzsche rejected Freud's idea that sex was the main motivator of human behavior, and he believed it was man's will and drive for power that was the significant motivator of human behavior. By the way, his teachings laid the foundations for uh, Adolf Hitler and the Third Reich and their ideas and teachings. Nietzsche subscribed to Dostoevsky's observation that without God, all things are permissible. He went on to mock those who rejected the Christian God but tried to maintain Christian ethics and morality. Ravi Zacharias, the well-known apologist, says of Nietzsche that he compelled the philosophers to pay the full fare of their ticket to atheism. 
Nietzsche was honest enough to say, if there's no God, there are no moral absolutes. Do away with Christian ethics and morality. It's every man for himself. And he followed where atheism led. And it led Nietzsche to an insane asylum for the last years of his life. Another uh, atheist of note was Charles Darwin, of course, who was the author of The Origin of the Species, published in 1859. His thesis, and you know it well, was that biological evolution was sufficient to explain the origin of the species. A divine creator was not needed. You know, it's interesting that evolutionary theory has moved from its biological roots in our day to dominate the scientific, philosophical, and cultural landscape of our time. It's an incredibly important thesis. Other men like uh, Bertrand Russell, of course, famous for his book, Why I Am Not a Christian. During the last couple of decades, atheism, at least in the West, as I said before, has had something of a revival. Ravi Zacharias says, never before has skepticism had such a brilliant halo around its head. In our culture, there is a glory in not knowing. A high premium is placed on an absence of conviction and open-mindedness has become synonymous with intellectual sophistication. So a group of men have grown up, they're self-entitled new atheists, and they have stepped up their attack on religion in general and in Christianity in particular. At the forefront of new atheism is an evolutionary biologist by the name of Richard Dawkins, author of the best-selling books, The God Delusion and The Blind Watchmaker. I don't know if you've read anything of Dawkins, but he has the subtlety of a, bl a blunt instrument in terms of his attacks on Christianity, on faith. When asked how to respond to Christians, he said, mock them ridicule them. I'm all for offending people's religion. It should be offended at every opportunity. I note, though, that he tends to concentrate on offending Christians and to do most of his offending in Western nations, ironically, with their value of free speech, which actually comes out of the Judeo-Christian roots. I suspect that he's well aware of the fact that were it Islam that he was offending and were it done in Riyadh and Saudi Arabia, Arabia, he wouldn't have any need for his return ticket. Perhaps it's just an observation that reflects the darkness of my own heart, but I'm tempted to suggest that his freedom to offend and his boldness in doing so seems to be directly correlated with his regard for his own safety and well-being. I, I find it a little rich that Dawkins contemns, condemns the biblical God for being prejudiced, hate-filled, egotistical, and demeaning toward those who disagree with him, when it seems reasonably plain that he manifests so many of the same traits that he finds objectionable in God. He says that people who don't believe in evolution are ignorant, stupid, insane, or wicked. He went on in that same rant to say what he particularly disliked about creationists were that they were intolerant. Selah. Now, other key figures in this new atheist stable are men like Daniel Dennett, uh, Samuel, uh, Sam Harris, uh, Lawrence Krauss, and the late Christopher Hitchens. Um, from my observation, the brand of new atheists can really only be distinguished from old atheists by a considerably large dose of fanaticism, the very thing that they seem to despise in the Christians that they are critical of. Their tone is angry, aggressive, unreasonable, and hate-filled. In terms of um, attacking Christianity, they manifest the same kind of qualities that they are so critical of. Sam Harris infamously noted that some positions, notably theism, are so dangerous that it may be ethical to kill people for believing them. 
And I just want to say the Taliban would be proud of that. Dawkins went on record to say teaching children about God should be considered worse than sexually abusing them. Now, when I read statements like that, I don't know how they affect you, but I'm reminded of the brilliant Albert Einstein, who, tongue-in-cheek, once said, two things are infinite, the universe and human stupidity, and I'm not sure about the universe. (laughs) The late Christopher Hitchens raged and railed against, of all people, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, calling her a fanatic, a fundamentalist, and a fraud. And he claimed that millions of people were worse off because of her life and added, and I quote, it's a shame there's no hell for the bitch to go to. One of Hitchens' uh, colleagues drolly commented, my sympathies were with Mother Teresa. If you were sitting in rags in the gutter in Calcutta, who would be more likely to come up and give you a cup of soup? Now, I, I do want to say that the view of these aggressive Uh, new atheists, are not representative of all atheists, many who have commented to the effect that Dawkins and co. are nothing short of an embarrassment to the atheistic cause. We don't have time to look into all that they've claimed. Uh, Others have done it and done it, in my view, very convincingly. But I I want to say that Christianity, they claim, is a blind face that runs in the face of overwhelming evidence is, is incorrect. It is, um, in fact, contrary to the claims that they make. It's incredibly important to understand that both Christianity and 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 atheism are belief systems. When I defined atheism before, I said it is a belief in the non-existence of God. It is a belief system. Our difficulty is that God is not an empirical hypothesis that can be verified or falsified by the scientific method. You simply cannot take that hypothesis into the laboratory and test it. That question lies beyond science's legitimate scope. Now, new atheists reject that. They are in the habit of trying to pit science against religion, and they make the claim that what science cannot tell us, we cannot know. And anything that science can't empirically verify is meaningless. Now, that's, that's rather embarrassing because that statement cannot be scientifically verified and is therefore, by their own standards, meaningless. Look, look, seriously, folks, if you think about it, there are so many beliefs that we hold that cannot be scientifically proven. The fact that all human beings are born free and are equal in dignity and rights cannot be scientifically verified. It cannot be tested. That democracy is a better form of government than fascism. That oppression is evil. We clearly hold many beliefs that that have no unimpeachably rational justification, but are nonetheless reasonable to entertain. Neither Christianity nor atheism can be proven scientifically. So don't be bullied by people who say science is against religion. It's not. They are clearly different spheres. I would want to suggest to you tonight that there's ample evidence that actually makes Christianity a very viable and very reasonable proposition. And there have been volumes that have written, been written on this subject. So I'm not planning anything of substance really with you tonight. What I would like simply to do is throw out a couple of thoughts to you that you might like to pursue, and I hope that they will have the effect 
on you that they had on me when I pursued them and gave them time. You will find that there is a very pervasive, uh, persuasive case for Christianity. For example, just the whole idea of the origins of the universe. The central idea of Christianity is that God created all things out of nothing, ex nihilo. Now, atheists have long mocked or debunked that idea as unbelievable. I would like to say it's reasonable then that you come up with a a reason for why there is something rather than nothing. The Christian gospel says God created something out of nothing. What do you say? Well, Daniel Dennett says the universe created itself. The incoherence is stunning. That's the same as saying the man gave birth to himself. Think about it. The universe created itself. Not only is that scientific foolishness, it's philosophical nonsense. Lawrence Krauss and no lesser person than Stephen Hawking both claim that the world was created out of nothing. Hawking and Melodinov, Alexander Melodinov, wrote a book entitled The Grand Design in which they say, and I quote, Because the law of gravity and the quantum vacuum exists, therefore the universe will create itself from nothing. This is an astounding statement. Not because it's brilliant, but it shows that even the brilliant can, as Einstein said, be quite stupid. This is not only questionable science, it's really, really poor philosophy. Let me summarize. Because something exists, the world will create itself out of nothing. I mean, the law of gravity and quantum vacuum are not nothing. They are redefining nothing. The universe is created by something and nothing simultaneously. Think about it. I mean, if it weren't for the brilliance of the men who suggest this, this is laughable. I I love what G.K. Chesterton, the English wit, says about such nonsense. He says, it is absurd to complain that that it is unthinkable for an admittedly unthinkable God to make everything out of nothing and then pretend that it is more thinkable that nothing should turn itself into everything. (laughs) Not only do atheists have to explain the earth coming to existence in a moment, as Big Bang cosmology has proven that it did, but they must then grapple with what scientists call the anthropic principle, which is the fact that the earth is exquisitely tuned for human life, and the odds of it being tuned that way are effectively, uh, that they are tuned that way by accident, are effectively non-existence. Non-existent. Anthony Flew was probably the 20th century's most notorious atheist. He was a distinguished philosopher who possessed a towering and courageous intellect. To the shock of the atheistic community in 27, Anthony Flew wrote a book titled There Is a God, subtitled How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. And in the book, he details how he came to believe that the intelligent design that he saw in the cosmos led directly to God. He said he had to have the honesty to acknowledge that that's where the evidence led. So there's the whole issue of the origin of the universe. There's the issue of human morality. What what explains the sense of moral obligation that we human beings universally experience? 
Why is it that we seem to intuitively know some things to be right and other things to be wrong? Now, we explain it by recognizing that the Scripture says we are made in the image of God, and as part of that image, we have a basic awareness of right and wrong. As Romans chapter 2, verse 14 says, God's law is not something alien, imposed on us from without, but woven into the very fabric of our creation. There's something deep within us that echoes God's yes and no, right and wrong. Now, atheists cannot ground that universal sense of right and wrong on anything but arbitrary subjective choice. Sam Harris tried to come to grips with this problem in 2010 in his book, The Moral Landscape, but it's basically been met with a nonplussed, unconvinced audience. He does not ground it properly. As Dostoevsky said, if there isn't a God, anything is permissible. So people say, well, you know, no, we've, we've got to have some kind of laws. Well, whose laws? Mother Teresa's or Adolf Hitler's. If there's no God, you choose. There's no right or wrong in that choice. Most of us couldn't live like that. Now, I want to suggest to you that this isn't understood as a claim that atheists cannot live moral lives. They clearly can and often do. What I'm simply suggesting is that they're living better than their worldview actually should allow them to live. There's another issue that I think we should think about when we're thinking about a case for Christianity particularly, and it's the issue of human desire. You know, it seems that mankind has within them a homing instinct for God, an eternally shaped vacuum inside their hearts, if you like. Ecclesiastes 3.11 puts it this way, he's also planted eternity, a sense of divine purpose in the human heart, a mysterious longing for which nothing under the sun can satisfy except God. That's why, by the way, in every known human society, there is some form of reaching out to touch transcendence. There's some form of worship going on. In the, in the societies that tried to stop that, for example, the communists of the 60s through you know, in the early 2000s, they failed miserably to eradicate that longing within the human heart. The Germans have a phrase for that desire. They call it sensuk, and it's, it's, it describes a kind of homesickness a homesickness for a home that we haven't seen but intuitively know exists. C.S. Lewis put it famously and uh, when he said, <clears throat> if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Now, these things aren't intended to be rid rigorous, logical proofs of God's existence, of course. But I'd like to suggest to you that they are rumors of another world. And that those rumors, for each of us, have existential weight in our experience. These are things that we know of. There is that, there is that longing that goes on in our hearts. <clears throat> Father Thomas Dubay, a Catholic scholar, wrote a wonderful book entitled The Evidential Power of Beauty. And that's another rumor of another world. Like the argument from desire, it's not a logical, rigorous proof of God, but it is a rumor of something beyond simply matter, simply naturalism. So many of us have found ourselves deeply moved by the beauty of our world. 
whether it's a sunset or a scene that deeply catches us. I'll never forget the first time that I went to Nepal. And um, we, were, we, we were driving along, and the clouds cleared, and I saw the Annapurna Ranges for the first time. Machapuchri, you know, they call it Mount uh, Fishtail. And, and, I mean, it almost felt like I'd reach out and touch them, soaring up into the sky, dwarfing anything that we have in New Zealand. 22,000 feet, just absolutely breathtaking. I, I could not take my eyes off it. People were talking to me, and it was like just going over my head. I had never seen anything like it. I was so deeply captured by the incredible beauty and majesty of it. What about a piece of music that touches us at a level that we simply can't articulate, that we sit listening to and find tears streaming down our face at the magnificence of this music? A piece of art or literature, you know, you're reading a book that so touches you at such a deep, profound level. These experiences impact us at a level beyond rational analysis. Now, of course, an atheist would say that proves absolutely nothing. And as I say, I'm not trying to suggest it as a logical scientific proof, but it seems to me that it does, it does suggest that you and I possess an instinct, as it were, for transcendence. We reach out for something. We acknowledge the beauty. We say of sin as ugly as sin. It's an adage coined from observation. We recognize some things are intuitively wrong and ugly. Some things are magnificent beyond description. Again, C.S. Lewis put it, uh, put, put it beautifully when he, he said, the, the beauty of these things was mediated through the world but pointed beyond it. He said, those things in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them, it only came through them. An acute experience of great beauty readily evokes a nameless yearning in us for something much, much more than this earth can offer. And the elegant splendor reawakens our spirit's aching need for the infinite, our hunger for more than matter can provide. If the atheists are right, and this world is nothing more than matter and chemical reactions, can I suggest to you that the next time you say to your spouse or your boyfriend or your girlfriend, I love you, that they respond back to you, that's an interesting chemical reaction, <laughs> and see what kind of response you get. I would do it while I was running the other way, actually. There are so many things in our world that simply chemical reactions and matter cannot, do not explain. Random chance and chemical reactions have never offered an explanation for the beauty of a waltz, the moving symphony that you listen to, or the epic piece of literature. They simply can't. And I don't have time, but there are so many other things that we could explore that are rumors of another world, human rationality, human relationality, the awareness that we carry deep within us of our finiteness, of our mortality. I suspect that sheep and buffalo don't sit around in groups discussing whether there's life after death. We do. In the moments of quietness, we wonder. We explore those realms. Our deep sense also that this world is disordered, 
where people say, what is wrong with this world? After the shooting that we witnessed this week, the people who shake their head and say, what is wrong with this world? We intuitively know something is out of kilter. Where do we get that sense from? If there is no God, if there is no absolute right and wrong, if, if right and wrong are simply subjective decisions that you come to, why is it that intuitively we recognize that that was evil? You know, some people use concept of suffering and evil to try and disprove God's existence. And they'll say, well, if there's a good God, how come there's evil in the world? But quite frankly, and a little bluntly, if there isn't a God, there's actually no objective basis to differentiate good from evil, and your question is meaningless. Richard Dawkins acknowledges this. He says, there is at the bottom of this world no reason, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. I bags that you tell the rape victim, I bags that you tell the Holocaust survivor, the sexually molested child, that there isn't any good or evil, just a world in which these things happen that what happened to them is nothing more than some kind of perception that's just tied up in their own subjective feelings. It, it doesn't wash. Deep in our hearts, we know some things are right and some things are wrong. Human morality, where do we get that from? The atheist has to explain that, and none of them have been able to do it with any degree of, um, of persuasive power. The Bible has a very simple answer, and I find it incredibly persuasive. There is a good God who gave free will to mankind. Mankind abused that free will and opened, as it were, Pandora's box, and we have been dealing with the contents of that box through the ages. God has come and stepped into the midst of our world to redeem, to restore, and to give us a way out if we'll take it. We can reject it if we like. You know what, the arrogance of many of the claims that the new atheists make. For example, Daw Dawkins calls the new atheists brights. Guess what that makes you? If they're the brights, congratulations, we are the dims. Um, I find the arrogance of that just staggering. Um, I, I don't even want to give time, really, to refute the claim. I do want to say, however, that Christianity is not a blind leap into the dark. It is not done contrary to evidence. It is done on the basis of evidence. And I want to tell you something else. Atheism has no more evidence than Christianity has. I think it was Pascal who once said, you know what, if you want to be, a, if you want to be a, a, an atheist, there is, enough believer, there is enough evidence to make you turn that way. And he said, he went on to say, if you want to be a Christian, there is enough evidence to make you turn that way. It's a, they are both belief systems. Both adherents of these systems would claim that there are things that would um, make their case persuasive. But to simply dismiss huge portions of our world, including some very, very intelligent portions of our world, and say they are ignorant, stupid, willful, or wicked, does not cut the mustard. 
Yes, there is a challenge from atheism. There is a challenge that as believers we have to grapple with and answer. And some of them come up with good questions that we need to get down on our knees and think about and pray over and read about, for sure. I'm not dismissing everything they say. But, but don't you be bullied. You know, our, our culture tends to bully people of belief and say, oh, yeah, we, you know, we, we believe in this flying spaghetti monster as well and fairies at the bottom of our garden. You're talking about completely different things. There isn't any historical evidence that the flying spaghetti monster rose from the dead. But there is evidence that Jesus Christ both lived, died on the cross, and rose from the dead. We're dealing with different things. Don't let people bully you. There is a challenge from atheism. We have an answer. We have some answers. And if you want to allow yourself to be biblically shaped by those answers, you want to do some more reading, shoot me an email and I'll give you a list of texts you might like to follow through and read. Thanks, Donald. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.